Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Richard Marin, who is CEO of Low Emissions Resources Corporation. Today we will discuss Retirement is Not for Wimps. Rich is a 42-year finance, real estate, and venture capital industry executive. He also is involved in managing private equity investments, consulting on major commercial real estate and attractions projects, and the retirement field. Rich is a retired clinical professor from the Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management, where he taught asset management, alternative assets, retirement and pensions, and project financing. He authored Global Pensions Crisis, Unfunded Liabilities, and How We Can Fill the Gap, and his latest book, Gulag 401k, Tales of a Modern Prisoner, was published in 2017. Rich, welcome. Thank you. The number of people retiring daily is huge. I read, I think it was a CNBC article that said 10,000 people are turning 65 every day. That's probably just in the United States. Exactly. And on the other side of that, we hear that most Americans... I don't know what the numbers are outside the country, but certainly there's a lot of talk that in the United States, the majority of people facing retirement, whether it's voluntary or forced, are woefully unprepared. And there's this anxiety floating in the air from all parts of the spectrum in terms of age and proximity to retirement. How do we get started when we're looking at this issue? Retirement is not for whims, certainly not, but everyone sooner or later is going to be dealing with this. How do we address it? How do we get our arms around this topic that's so large and unwieldy? Well, Elena, I think the first thing to recognize is that um, it's, it's a global demographic issue that we face, which is to say that the baby boom, the post-war baby boom generation created a bulge, a demographic bulge. And when you look at demographic research, um, historically, uh, there's been what's called the age pyramid. And what that uh, construct tells us is that there are uh, a decreasing number of people in the different age cohorts as you go up in, in age, so that there are more um, you know, let's say zero to 20 year olds than there are 20 to 40 year olds and there are more of those than there are 40 to 60 year olds and more of those than 60 to 80 year olds, et cetera, et cetera. And it created historically a pyramid and that's changed. It's changed because of the baby boom generation, because of the bulge that was created in, in births after World War II. And it's changed because of a uh, recent phenomenon in the world, uh, like improved health care and longevity increases, people are living longer, um, and that's caused those older cohorts to uh, sort of widen, and, and it's, it has stopped being a pyramid shape because the older uh, groups of people are living longer, um, and 
there is a declining fertility rate in much of the developed world, which is causing the bottom of the pyramid to actually be narrower than it's historically been on a relative basis. So this pyramid has turned into something that looks more like a column than a pyramid. And that change is very, very fundamental to um, what happens in the world in many, many ways. And economically speaking, what it's done is it's put us in a position where people are we're forced to deal with a growing uh, percentage of the population that is uh, past its working life, is in retirement, and is n either non-productive or less productive. And it creates a very big change in the economic dynamics of the world. Because if you will, it used to be that there was a broader base of younger working population to support a relatively small, non-working, retired population. Now with those changes, people living longer and there being fewer younger people relative to older people, you're actually creating a, a dynamic where fewer younger people are around to support the older population. And I, I call it um, actually a, a species-defining event because a species in the biological sense is defined by how well we take care of uh, of our old people, our aged, and how well we provide for our young. Um, when you think of you know nature, that's the way you you look at nature. How well do they uh, do they take care of the the young in their species, and how well do they take care of the old? And we're now in a funny place for the world, where the old are consuming a bigger portion of the uh, of the production, if you will, of the world, and that means that there's less growth available for the younger portion, and that creates a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety. Um, I, when you look at what's called the old age dependency ratio, which is the amount of um, of older generation people, retired people that have to be supported by younger people, that ratio is growing at alarming rates, so much so that, for instance, in Japan, uh, there are going to be three retired people for every working person by 2050. Now, you can imagine the kind of burden that creates on the younger population. Now, that all is solved if everybody has saved enough to supply their own retirement, but many of the world economies have what you call pay-as-you-go systems where they rely on the younger working population to support the older population. And that's what's causing more and more angst and anxiety among people because um, having sufficient resources for a comfortable retirement um, depend not only in some countries on what you've saved, but on the ability of the government to tax the young working population to support the older retired population. Now, that's a lot to swallow all at once, but it's this changing demographic of the world that has uh, created this issue, and that's just been exacerbated by uh, people in certain countries and in certain areas are not saving enough for their own retirement and having to depend on their government 
to support, support their retirement. And by the way, when I talk about government, it could be a national government like the United States and Social Security, or it could be a local and municipal government if you say we're a fireman or a teacher, uh, depending on the state and depending on the um, municipality to support you. We saw that all come up with the, the with the bankruptcy of the city of Detroit recently, and we're seeing it increasingly for different states and different uh, municipalities across the United States as the burden of supporting retired population is starting to weigh more and more heavily on the younger portions of the working population. Earlier this year, the government announced that there's not enough money in our reserves, federal government reserves, for the future that, I forget what the number was in terms of the actual year, but in the next 10 years, there wasn't going to be anything left. I think it was about 10 years. And this had gone from an area of concern to an area of crisis between last year and this year. And so the question is, What's going to happen to the people who are nearing retirement and the people who are retired if this money runs out, never mind all the people who are coming behind in the line queuing for their retirement benefits? What can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, I would start by saying, despite what you may have read in that one article, this is not a brand new problem. And it's not as though this is a problem which has just come up in the last year. This has been a, an accumulating problem over many, many years. And so we have to think in what I call retirement life cycle. A retirement life cycle is a very long 40 plus year uh, cycle because that's how long people usually work. And it hasn't just happened overnight or in one year. Um, it, we've been building to this point. The reason it feels like it may have happened overnight is because uh, there's been a lot of what we all call kicking the can going on, where we kick the can down the road and let somebody worry about it later. And that's kind of where we are right now. We're at a point where, look, I'm 64 years old, and I was born in 1954, which means that I'm dead center in the middle of the baby boom cohort, a baby boom generation. So I'm in the middle of this bulge generation, as they call it. Um, and that means that I am reaching retirement age. In my case, I reach it in 2019, if you think of 65 as the traditional retirement age. And so the baby boom cohort that has created this bulge is just now starting to retire. That's why people are starting to be unable to kick the can down the road much longer because, um, you know, all of these issues are sort of coming home to roost right now uh, from, a, from a demographic or generational sense. Um, it's a little bit, what you're asking me is a little bit like saying, given where we are with the, you know, heating up of the Earth's atmosphere and global warming or climate change, you know, are we all on a collision path with destruction? Uh, the, the, I think the answer is always that if you, if you extrapolate the current trend, you would end up feeling very bleak about the future. But you'd also be forgetting about how um, 
technology and uh, various solutions that we as creative individuals come up with uh, can solve some of these problems and deal with them. In the case of retirement, the way you deal with them is to deal with the current, what I call temporal problem, temporal meaning it only lasts for so long, as long as this baby boom cohort is is uh, alive, uh, and then you deal with the problem of those that come behind us uh, by saying, let's not make the same mistake again. Let's make sure we're saving at a higher pace to ensure that there are enough assets set aside for retirement for those uh, individuals in the future. I think you can solve the future generation's problems much more easily and with less pain by dealing with them now and using the compounding effect of 40 years of the retirement cycle to handle that. It's the current problem of the next 30 years of the retiring baby boomers that is most concerning to me because of this fact that um, that there is an insufficient amount of money set aside to provide for their retirement. Let's look at a couple of statistics. The way um, economists look at this issue is to look at the percentage of GDP or gross domestic product that is set aside for um, uh, retirement and, in, and put into retirement assets. Um, how would an individual think of that? Well, if you earn $50,000 a year, how much do you have set aside uh, in, in terms of savings? Well, the United States has about 120% of GDP set aside in retirement savings. To translate that, if you were a person who earns $50,000, that would be like saying, I have $60,000 in my retirement account. That sounds um, okay, but it doesn't sound terribly encouraging because $60,000 in savings, if you are uh, generating $50,000 a year in income, sounds like you don't have an awful long time for um, your retirement savings to last you. And 120% of GDP sounds light. Well, the best countries in the world, Switzerland and the Netherlands being the two that are, are highest on this scale, only have about 170 or 180 percent of GDP. Japan, by the other uh, token, has about 60 percent of GDP uh, set aside. Um, and there are reasons for that, which I won't go into right now, but they are much lower. The big problem area, strangely enough, is Europe because the two pillars of the EU, Germany and France, are sitting at respectively alarmingly low rates of savings. They have 15% in the case of Germany and 6% in the case of France. What that means is they have an even bigger burden to put on their younger working population to support their older retiring populations. So relatively speaking, the U.S. in that range is in reasonably good shape as a whole. The problem is it's never the whole that um, uh, you know sort of has to has to feed itself. It's always the individuals that have to feed themselves, and then you have to look at the individuals and how much of our population is prepared for retirement versus not. And unfortunately, um, that's never evenly. Uh, spread and there are a lot of people both in the U.S. and globally who are not prepared for retirement and don't have enough money saved. The only way to solve that problem is to have enough growth in the economy, um, presumably through technology 
and improvements in productivity. The only way is to have enough growth for the existing working population to be able to be taxed at a rate to support the older uh, folks. Um, and, you know, some people think that's reasonable and fair, uh, that they should be taxed to pay for the older generation. Some people think it's horribly unfair and they don't want any part of it. Um, and hence, a lot of the political divide that gets created in the world and in the, every country now, uh, because it's always about, you know, um, my interests versus the other guy's interests. And, and retirement does nothing if not um, highlight and exacerbate those kinds of uh, uh, problems because we will need to um, reallocate resources to the older population unless we want people literally starving in the streets. What impact can we anticipate that these rising interest rates and the federal debt going up are going to have on our economy, by extension, on retirement? Are, could we anticipate that there's going to be a devaluation of the dollar, for example? Well, um, of course, the dollar and its value against other currencies uh, is very much a function of of its relative um, uh, uh, strength or weakness compared to those other currencies. And one of the reasons I start off describing this as a global problem is to let you know that I don't believe this is unique to the United States, and I don't believe the, unique, uh, the United States is in a worse position than the rest of the world. It is in a better position relative to much of the world. It's certainly in a better position relative to the countries that um, utilize the um, euro. So I think dollar is actually going to strengthen against the euro. I think it'll strengthen against the yen. And then when you look at um, perhaps the one other currency you want to think about uh, for the dollar on a relative basis, the yuan or the um, the uh, you know Chinese currency, um, you ask yourself, well, what about China? Well, China has uh, uh, retirement savings sort of on the order of what the EU has because they've only started their retirement program relatively recently. And their one-child policy created a very strange effect. It has been so effective at reducing population that the decline in their birth rate, combined with the natural longevity increases of their population, which is more from the rural areas to the urban areas, is such that they're going to be facing an even bigger retirement crisis than the U.S. by 2030. Um, as an example, my book, The Pension Global Pension Crisis, was published in only one other language besides English, and that was China, Mandarin Chinese, because it sold very well in China because they've recognized this problem and are examining it for quite closely for solutions. So I think the U.S. currency is actually going to hold up very well against the euro, the yen, and the yuan uh, in the next 30 years because of our relative positioning on this very topic. So, um, strangely enough, yes, we are short in terms of our funding at 120% of GDP. Yes, we will have a bit of a squeeze on our uh, retirement uh, um, situation, creating a, a need for a little more taxation and possibly a little bit more inflation. But I believe relative to other countries, we're actually very well positioned. So I wouldn't worry about devaluation as much as I would about, um, uh, let's just say, um, 
the inflationary impact of uh, of uh, the rising debt levels. And just to add one other thing, when you talk about rising debt levels, I mean, the U.S. has debt levels that are you know approaching now with our recent um, um, tax program, which is a deficit finance tax program. Um, uh, we have a, 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 a debt level that's approaching $20 trillion, um, but that excludes the unfunded pension liabilities and unfunded um, post-retiree uh, medical benefit obligations. When you add those on there, as you would have to for any country, by the way, not just the U.S., um, your debt levels are almost twice as high as uh, the pure existing debt would imply. So if you look at those as added debt burdens, I think there is a, an extremely high debt burden, which does indeed create um, an inflationary tendency. Um, and I do think that's one of the bigger risks that we face, but not relatively worse than other countries. How soon? Well, the thing about um, the demographic cycle that is inherent in retirement is that it's um, it's very visible down the road. And and as I've said, I believe it's a 30-year time frame. Now, that, of course, depends on how long – the baby boom generation continues to live, and um, it, it puts one in a very awkward and funny position of saying, in some ways, we want everyone to live as long as they possibly can and live a long and healthy life as long as they possibly can. But if you're looking at this on an aggregate economic basis, the more longevity we have, uh, the bigger burden we have. So. Um, I, uh, I would tell you that we certainly will have this problem over the next 30 years. When I was um, lecturing my students, uh, business school students, I said to them uh, at the beginning in the very first lecture, I would say that the biggest financial crisis that they all face, and it will be the biggest, uh, have the biggest impact of any single issue that they face in their careers for the next 40 years, is the retirement crisis because it is so pervasive and um, so hard to eliminate that it is going to um, guide the economic futures of all the countries in the world over the next 30 to 40 years. That's the time frame when all of this occurs, and I believe that awareness and knowledge of that, of that tsunami, if you will, um, is important for people to grasp in order to make sure they stay up above the wave instead of getting crushed by that wave. And it relates to things like decisions of, you know, how much you save, how you invest your money, uh, how you spend your money, where you choose to live. I, I make one joke about um, uh, the, the most heavily fortified border in the world in another 20 years is going to be the border between Wisconsin and Illinois. Why? Because Wisconsin is the best funded state of the union in terms of pension obligations and post-retiree medical obligations, and Illinois is the worst. It's 50th. And I said, imagine living on the wrong side of that border by a quarter mile. Um, that your pension and your taxation rate is going to be dramatically different in Wisconsin from Illinois. So where you live is going to matter a lot. And so this is part of that awareness that um, people need to be thinking about when they plan their futures. 
the general numbers that you share with us that give us the impression the U.S. is not in as bad a shape looking forward as some other countries, as you shared, the EU, Japan, China, is in conflict with the way that individuals feel specifically in the United States and in the OECD countries. The polls that they have done through the OECD of its member countries indicate that of the developed countries within that group, the people with the lowest happiness ratios are in the United States. And the reason for that, they have said, is because there is a safety net in Europe. So people in Europe feel that if something happens to them, there is a social safety net that they can fall on. So, well, I, I, would, I would argue that that is correct. That is why they are happy now. Um, but as we all know, there is a high cost of social safety nets. And um, that cost is only going to rise if you are, do not have retirement savings to support the increasing number of retired people. Um, and it's funny because I see all kinds of effects of this that some people who aren't as focused on retirement don't see. And I'll give you a case in point on immigration. Um, Look at the policies that the big EU countries like Germany have have had for opening their borders in the last few years. Now, we can all say that's because they're kindler and gentler folks, uh, but the truth of the matter is they've been opening their borders because they need to. When you don't have population growth and you have an aging population to support, you need younger working um uh, uh, population increases and you need to have uh, immigration in order to uh, su supplant what you're not sort of creating yourself in you know, through fertility and through uh, you know birth rate uh, within your indigenous population. Um, Europe has recognized it. I believe Angela Merkel has been very aware of the need for immigration to support their economy going forward. In many ways, I would argue that the United States has benefited um, tremendously from its immigration policies in the past in sort of uh, allowing a high level of immigration and having a high uh, immigrant population. And one of the reasons um, we have better um, looking retirement economics is because we have effectively used immigration to supply that younger blood, if you will, into our working population. Um, there's another interesting issue, which is that immigrants also generally have lower birth rates in their first generation. I'm sorry, lower longevity rates in their first first generation. They, that improves with the second and third generation, but that also brings down the um, sort of average age. The average age in the U.S. for a male, for instance, is 78, where it's about 83 in Europe. So, yes, they're happier now in Europe. They live longer. They have a social safety net. But the cost of that in terms of tax rates is rising at an alarmingly high pace and will accelerate from here to the point where you are starting to see in Europe more and more of these um, right-leaning 
governments starting to come into place, and that's why you see things like you're seeing in Italy and elsewhere where there's starting to be a concern about how do we pay for this social safety net, which is growing and growing. We have that concern here in the U.S., but that concern has not been, I think, as severe, and the impacts of it are nowhere near as severe as they are in Europe. I think the effects of uh, a lack of immigration in places like Japan is going to make it very, very hard for them to meet up with their pension obligations and their need for workers. And there's a population that hasn't really taken to allowing immigrants in for many, many years. Um, I actually still believe the U.S. is a much better uh, in much better shape and in a much better systematically able to address the issues of retirement because of the way you're approached. It's one of the reasons I don't personally like to see all of this concern about closing our borders because I believe that immigrant inflow has been very helpful to us and will continue to be very helpful to us economically to balance our retirement versus growth um, conundrum that we in every country faces right now. There is a group of Americans who are increasingly leaving the country because they can't afford to live here, or perhaps more accurately because they can't afford to live the lifestyle that they were expecting in the United States. And so I have seen firsthand people reaching their retirement years and moving to Europe, people, younger people, coming out of school with advanced degrees and moving to Asia, moving to Latin America, moving out of New York, for example, because the price of life in New York has gone up so much. Sure. How do you see these factors playing into this retirement crisis? Because if we're losing our educated, our experienced population, that has got to have a long-term impact on our ability to generate revenue to fuel this retirement. Well, I would I would start by reminding you that um, the people that are leaving are people that are leaving the productive uh, marketplace, and therefore, um, yes, they may be well-educated, but they're also not actively in the workforce so much anymore. So. I'm a little less concerned about, well, let's call it the brain drain aspect of that uh, problem because, um, quite frankly, uh, and I'll use my classroom experience as a, as a case in point, when I look around the room uh, in one of my classrooms, um, I'm going to guess that 70% of the people in my classroom were, of, uh, were first-generation immigrants um, or children of immigrants, and um, they uh, – were the most aggressive and in some ways best and brightest in my in my classroom. So I worry less about the brain drain uh, than I, I do about um, the issue of whether or not moving to a better, let's say, locale uh, outside the United States is a smart move short run versus long run. And I think it depends on where you are in your life cycle. I think uh, moving to, and I'll pick Costa Rica as a great example. I think moving to Costa Rica for, you know, some time that looks like another 10 years or 15 year span 
may very well be a, a good economic decision for an individual to make because um, health care in Costa Rica and Panama is pretty good relative to the United States, and uh, cost of living is certainly lower. Uh, I won't address the lifestyle issues because maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Uh, I've lived in the tropics. It's not for me, but that's not the case for everybody. Um, I, um, I think that could well be a good solution. Now, when you think long term, you need to think much bigger picture about what uh, effect it has to be in um, a non-U.S. locale as your main uh, point of living. I would argue that moving to Europe for economic reasons uh, is a very short-sighted decision because, yes, you might be able to save some money on cost of living in the short run. Yes, you may be able to benefit from their social welfare net a little bit. But I also believe, as I've stated before, that that is quickly coming to a crisis level because of the low level of retirement savings they currently have in place, the need increasingly to rely on increased taxation for that purpose, and the, um, let's say, the uh, opposition or revolution that's coming from people that feel like, hey, I can't, you can't tax me any more than what you're taxing me because um, uh, it doesn't make sense for me to work if you're going to tax 80% of my income. Uh, I I believe that uh, that moving to those kinds of locales will uh, only benefit you in the short run, and that you could be very unhappy with your decision longer term. I am also a, a, a rabid uh, patriot, and I've spent a lot of my life living overseas, and I believe there is no place better suited to. Um, both address the issues of the retirement crisis and that has a better lifestyle overall long term than the United States. So that's personal opinion, but I'm, uh, I would uh, caution anybody that's thinking of leaving the country because of pure economic reasons right now to think very long and hard about it before they do it. The numbers that I've seen make it easy to understand why so many people are leaving and so many people are thinking of leaving for a place where their money goes a longer way. Mm -hmm. For those who choose to stay here, the estimates that experts are sharing of the amount of money that the average person needs to have in their kitty in order to live out their life, partly because we're living longer lives and partly because you don't know how much longer you will live than the previous generation, are out of sync with what people actually have, or so the experts tell us. In, In addition to that, interest that the banks are paying is very low, even though the interest rates have been going up slightly. What options does the average person have if they want to have enough money for retirement or at least to not be below the poverty line, which is what a lot of these alarmist reports are indicating, that most of our elderly are going to be below the poverty line in the coming years? Well, it's like any other problem, Elena. If you wait too long to address it, your options 
for getting good solutions are fairly limited. And um, there, uh, unfortunately, is no panacea for people that are older and didn't save enough and um, have a cost of living which is depleting their reserves faster than they see their lifespan ending. Um, there's no easy answer for that. We are we're largely past the era of the nuclear family and being able to support, uh, uh, you know, draw on support from the younger generations. Although you may see some of that happening, where more and more people um, have to rely on their their families, their children, or their grandchildren to help um, keep them out of the poverty zone. Um, but I. I um, I believe that if you are addressing the issue enough in advance so that you're not already um, sort of hopelessly lost in terms of your financial equation, uh, that the decisions you have to make are decisions that have to do with where you choose to live, in other words, what state you choose to live in. Um, and I think that does make a big difference, as I described the Wisconsin-Illinois issue. Um, but there's a big issue of where you can live most comfortably in the United States from a cost-of-living standpoint and from a standpoint of that state's ability to support its obligations without unduly taxing its residents in one form or another. Um, and I mean, you look at California, and I, I, I have a home in California, so I uh, think about this quite a bit. But uh, you know, there are extra taxes imposed on the wealthiest folks in the state uh, to pay for the uh, shortfall in the state pension requirements. Um, there are extra taxes being levied on gasoline to pay for road construction because the regular tax base isn't doing that. There are many ways uh, governments, state governments, municipal governments can effectively tax their population and that can increase the uh, cost of living for a retiree uh, quite dramatically if they're, if they're um, stuck living in the, the wrong place. So I think where you live uh, and more importantly maybe how you live uh, meaning, you know, can you can you comfortably live, um, you know, on less and reduce your your burn rate so that um, you know your money will last longer? Is all those are all important things that you have to do. You you have to modify your lifestyle to deal with what money you have to uh, to spend. There are certain things you can do on the investment front, and I do believe that. If inflation keeps kicking up and interest rates keep kicking up, the amount of interest that will be paid to consumers eventually will rise. But banks are very good at lagging uh, when rates uh, uh, are rising. They they don't lag on charging interest rate on loans, but they lag on paying interest on deposits. Um, and uh, uh, that's a very traditional banking um, phenomenon that works in both directions as rates rise and as rates fall. Um, so I do think that rates on fixed income instruments and CDs and such will rise eventually as rates and underlying inflation rise. So I wouldn't worry so much about that. I do believe that one of the biggest issues that retiring people face is how to invest the nest egg that they do have because there's an interesting factoid which um, 
I also shared with a lot of my students to help them understand this issue that if your retirement needs are 100 cents, I ask them, you know, how much of that do you think is based on, first of all, what you've contributed as opposed to the accumulation from um, compounding or uh, or returns from your investments? And the number is at a, at a normalized uh, 5% current rate of, of, uh, of inflation. Um, 15 cents out of a, out of a, a dollar, it comes from the money you or your employer put in. And between the date of when you started working until the date you retire, say at 65, another 35 cents comes from the accumulation of returns from that 15 cents that you've uh, invested over that period of time. So, you know, a total of 50 cents on every dollar uh, of your retirement income comes from what you invested and the earnings on that investment. And you can see the proportion there, 15 versus 35. But now the obvious question someone's going to say is, wait a minute, Rich, what about the other 50 cents? Where does that come from? And here's the shocking part. The rest of that, the other 50 cents comes from how you invest your money from the date of retirement till the date you die. So from 65 till call it 85, that's going to represent 50 cents of that um, retirement uh, pool of money that you have to spend. And most people, when they turn 65 or, you know, at retirement age, uh, are thinking, well, gee, I, I just want to invest in something safe and sound and I'll put it in the bank or I'll put it in a CD or I'll put it in a in a bond, a government bond, and earn a low rate of return. And in many ways, that's the time when people need to be, um, let's just say, more productive in their investment approach. And they probably ought to still be uh, heavily in, invested in, in the equity market. They are scared about the volatility of the equity market, so that worries them because it feels like it's risky. But I would argue that with 50 cents on the dollar of your retirement income security on the line, it's riskier to not invest in equities when you're uh, turning 65 and beyond. So there's a, a need to educate people um, at the most crucial time when their retirement nest eggs are the largest, which is right at the date of retirement, before they start spending it down. Um, how to invest that money. And I believe that investing it and staying fully invested in things like the equity market are critically important to their financial health because that extra 50 cents is going to mean a world of difference to their comfort in retirement if they invest it well. Are you referring to balanced funds and index funds? Are you referring to just going into the market and investing in companies that you like? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, I ran three of the largest money management firms in the world uh, over my career. And um, it's funny because a lot of people uh, automatically assume that given that role that I must be a, a wizard at investing, uh, and that they seek my advice quite regularly on this. And what I'm going to tell you is that there are very few sort of secrets to retirement or secrets to investing that I or anybody can share with you other than to tell you um, that that there are certain realities which I think um, 
everyone needs to think about when they're investing. Um, I I am a believer that even as you as you retire. Uh, and in your later years, when your retirement pool is the largest, it is very important to aggress, uh, 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 invest with the same degree of aggressiveness as you have been during the earlier part of your life. So, number one, I do believe that investing in equities, um, uh, even post-retirement, is critical. And, and do not make the mistake of thinking that if I put it all in bonds, I'm much safer because, first of all, bonds are not necessarily riskless. Bonds do vacillate in value. There is volatility in bonds. It is lower than in equities generally, but uh, you also have historically considerably lower returns from bonds than you do from equities. So I do believe equities need to be an important part of everybody's portfolio. You call it a balanced fund. Uh, obviously, there's, there are different blends that are needed uh, for different times in your life, but something in the order of 60-plus percent invested in equities, I think, is still sensible after, after the age of retirement. Um, in terms of how to invest, I always tell people the same thing. Um, if it were if it were my money or, or you know my sister's money, so to speak, if I were giving advice to my sister, it would be to invest in index funds um, because I think the ability to beat the market by picking active managers or by picking individual equities and stocks is a bit of a mugs game. It's very hard for anybody to do that. I am not a believer uh, that um, uh, people that are casually looking at the market and not literally studying companies in depth every moment of every day the way professional money managers do can beat the market. I think it's really hard, and history has proven that it's really hard for people to beat the market. So I am a big believer in indexing. Um, and if you ask me, the one of the most important financial concepts here is to minimize the cost of investing over time because paying an extra 1% uh, for your money management by buying actively managed funds um, versus passively managed funds uh, takes huge amount out of your returns. So I would argue that investing in something like a Vanguard equity fund, an index fund, uh, is the smart way to go because it's low cost um, and um, and you get the benefits of, uh, of the index rate of return um, at the you know smallest possible cost of money management. Um, that's what I advise everybody to do. And, um, you know, figure out the exact balance you need, uh, whether it's 60% equity or 70% equity, and make sure it fits your risk appetite somewhat. Don't, don't be foolish and not invest in equities even after retirement. But if you do invest in equities, be very sure that you're investing in a way that makes sense. And making sense here is don't invest in in uh, individual equities unless you have really, really good specific knowledge, and even then I question the value of doing that. And I question whether investing in actively active managers is a good idea relative to passive managers um, because history does not show that active managers have an easy time, if at all, being able to beat passive uh, returns. The numbers that I've seen for – 
the part of the population that invests in equities, I believe, was about 20% of the population hold most of the equities in the market. That tells us that a lot of our listeners may not choose that path. What happens, we bifurcate here, to those who do choose that road, who select, as you suggested, for example, Vanguard, how risky is that proposition? Vanguard now and companies like it, but especially Vanguard, of course, because they're not charging a lot in commissions, hold a huge amount of money. How dangerous is that? Well, first of all, Vanguard is more like a cooperative than a for-profit company. Understand that. That's one of the reasons they can keep their costs very low. Um, the way Vanguard was built was with that theory that uh, everyone who invests in them should sort of own a part of them. And I think in that sense, that's why they're able to keep their costs low. Now, are they very, very large? Yes, they are. But because they're uh, indexed manage, index managers for the most part, um, their positions are very broadly held over a very broad array of, of equities. And the scale is much easier to um, uh, make sense of in the overall context of, of uh, the marketplace. So I don't worry about their size. Um, I believe, uh, you know, there are moments where large passive managers or index managers get hurt uh, because of the fact that, you know, they all kind of move like cattle in one direction or, or, or another. And there, there can be, you know, if you will, stampedes occasionally that uh, create some some uh, problems for index funds, but they're much, much less uh, problematic and risky than um, uh, actively managed uh, funds, particularly those that have high concentrations in specific equities that can get caught with their drawers down around their ankles at a bad moment. And so I, I personally think that you're in fairly safe hands in a Vanguard-type uh, index fund. Um, as far as the investing population, I, I think that 20% statistic might be people who invest in individual equities. That number may not represent everybody that's invested through their 401ks and their other um, uh, um, defined contribution uh, and uh, defined benefit pension plans. I'm, I, I'm going to bet that the percentage ownership of equities is much broader if you include those. Uh, pools of money as far as how much individuals have invested in equity. Um, I think it probably goes much higher than 20%. But that goes to my fundamental issue that um, um, I don't advocate people going out and investing directly in the equity market. I don't even advocate people going out and directly investing in money managers other than index funds and probably best in collectives like Vanguard. For those people who are too uncomfortable doing that, for those people who want to have their money in a bank around the corner within reach, mm -hmm. rather than sending it to some far location, depending on where they are, where, say, Vanguard or any other of these companies is located, or who choose to have some of their money there, but they also want to have some money close to home. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge loss of trust in the banks, 
and the recent laws have made some changes and then been reversed. There are a lot of misunderstandings into in regard as to what the instruments themselves are. Is a CD safe, for example? I read recently that there is a loophole that has allowed some banks to offer CDs where your principal is actually at risk. Tell us a little bit about CDs, money markets, savings accounts. What can people who don't want to go into the equities market or who don't want to have mm -hmm. all of their money in the equities market, what can they do? How do they know who to trust among the banks? There's been some really horrible banking situations where the banks have misbehaved against even their own clients. What sure. suggestions can you share? Well, first of all, let's segregate out money market funds from banks because money market funds are indeed funds. And uh, for money market funds, the only advice I can generally give is to um, uh, base your investment in money market funds on the on the rating uh, of those funds, um, a Morningstar or or Lipper type rating system, and only invest in you know AAA rated uh, money market funds because they will invest in mostly U.S. government securities. Um, and other high-quality money market instruments. Uh, the key with the money market funds is to is to pay attention to the the rating because what we learned in the last financial crisis, the 08 crisis, was that some money market funds got a hold of structured paper that they thought was AAA rated because that has, that's what the rating agencies gave them, and they gave them AAA ratings, um, but they ended up, of course, being worth a lot less and therefore creating a gap and they did what's called break the buck on the on the on the funds and actually paid back less than 100 cents on the dollar of principal um, in general uh, the world has wised up to the composition of the assets in money market funds and those are reflected in the ratings that you see so going with a double or triple a rated fund is is best now those funds are quite different from individual banks. Individual banks, you have the risk of, of the bank, banking institution, um, and the only true way of being sure of what you're investing is is to make sure that you only keep as much money as is FDIC insured. Um, and if you exceed the FDIC insurance level at a given bank, um, well, then the convenience of being at the bank around the corner is a convenience which you're paying for in added risk. Um, quite frankly, I would, uh, if I were a small investor with, say, $500,000 to invest and I wanted it to be in banks and I didn't want to be in CDs and I didn't want to be in money market funds, I would I would put five hundred. I would put five investments of a hundred thousand dollars each in five different FDIC insured banks. Um, I think that's the only way you can really manage that, unless you're a very good credit analyst of, of of bank financial statements. And quite frankly, most of the people that you're talking about in that position don't have that skill set and wouldn't uh, know how to evaluate a bank and its balance sheet. Um, and um, so I would suggest staying within the FDIC limits. When you say five times 100,000, are you talking about savings accounts? Um, I'm talking about 
whether it's CDs or savings accounts, um, you know, the FDIC limit, uh, I think, is still $100,000. If it's $100,000 for the uh, banking institution, that's just saying that you can put up to $100,000 and have it guaranteed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. I came across this clause recently. Let me read it to you. It says, the bank may at any time require seven days advance notice that you intend to withdraw funds from your money market now or savings account. We may refuse to permit a withdrawal in such cases if we have not received the required notice. Is this pervasive? I had never heard of a bank that could refuse to give you your money when you went to the bank, which is essentially what this says. Do you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, I think it's a fairly old one, right? (laughs) Yes, it's on every Christmas, um, every holiday season, uh, and it's a Jimmy Stewart movie. Um, And this is the the story where they have a run on the banks, and he's a small savings and loan provider. And all the people come into the bank and want their money on the same day when there's a a, a sense that there's a crash coming. And... um, he reminds everybody that he's not obligated to give them their money um, for 60 days when they ask for it because, of course, it's all invested in mortgages around, around the community. But he ends up using the resources that he has in, in the bank to get people to take as little as they possibly can take out uh, to meet their needs. And, uh, and he makes it through the day by giving them their money back, even though he's not required to give it to them for 60 days under banking law. Um, so the idea that a bank has the ability to um, – not give you your money immediately is hardly a new idea. It's been around for many, many years in the uh, banking system. Um, Seven days is a fairly short window compared to uh, what restrictions existed for a long time on most CDs and other things. You know, they were 60 and 90 day type restrictions. So that isn't new. It isn't unusual. um, And it is there really to protect all the depositors collectively because if um, some people can rush in um, and and demand their money and take it all out sooner than other people can get to the bank, um, it puts those who aren't as fleet of foot uh, at a disadvantage to the people that run the fastest. And the, the, the banking system isn't supposed to work that way. You don't want to have runs. It's why, for instance, during distress, they will declare banking holidays and they will literally shut the banks down for a couple of days because in financial markets, people tend to overreact. And when they overreact, they generally either lose money or cause other people to lose money. They panic. Panic is bad in the banking system. Um, And what those um, circuit breakers, if you will, are in place for is to cause people to sit and think and to pause and not knee-jerk react to some bad news that makes them think, i got to get my money. Um, and it gives the banking institution time to organize its finances so that it can meet all of its depositor requirements uh, and not uh, be unable to to uh, pay its uh, depositors the money they request, not have to therefore invoke the FDIC insurance provisions and get intervened by the government. Um, so those those delays are there to protect you, uh, and I would argue that seven days is a, a pretty short 
window of time to have to wait for your funds. And believe me, most banks will only invoke them under very, very dire necessary situations. I think most people would be shocked if you stop people on the street, even well-educated people with, who've been banking for many years, to find out that there is a situation where they could go to their bank and their bank could refuse to give them money from their savings account, not CDs, but their savings account. I have a question that someone shared with me in advance. It says this is regarding pensions. So when you reach your retirement age, the pension turns into an annuity. I don't know, is it, is it always at 65 it's not always at 65. Uh, that's usually defined in the plans, uh, if we're talking about a defined benefit pension plan. And the annuitization effect is, let's, let's distinguish between two types of pensions, first of all. Defined benefit pension plans are pension plans which are established either by a company or by a state or municipality, which have a defined benefit to you. You know, you are entitled at a set retirement age, call it 65, it might be 63, it might be 67, um, but at a set and defined pension uh, uh, age, you are entitled to such and such a, a benefit based on, you know, the salary of your last three, average of your last three years, and that will accrue to the benefit of your spouse if you should, if she or he should survive you. Uh, there, are, there are a whole set of definitions in the plan. They're very carefully worded, very carefully controlled under ERISA, the law that governs uh, pension plans. Um, and yes, pensions by their very nature are set up to provide annuitization, which just means you get regular monthly payments for the rest of your life. Um, and hence the, the the term defined benefit. Your benefit is defined in that plan, and it doesn't matter how much money you gave in or didn't. That's the amount of benefit you get, and you get it till you die. And if you live to 120, you get it till you're 120. If you die when you're 66, uh, a year later, you know it, it ends or it accrues to the benefit of your spouse um, for however long that's provided for in the plan. Defined contribution plans, which are what 401ks are and 403bs are and 451 plans, and those relate to 401ks are corporate plans that are set up. 403bs are educational plans, like for colleges or, or, or you know, folks that work for higher higher education institutions. And 451 plans are for uh, government employees. Those defined contribution plans aren't necessarily annuitization plans. They are plans where when you reach a retirement age, whether it's 65, 63, or 67, um, you have access to a lump sum of money, which you then have to either invest yourself or, you know, God forbid you go out and spend it all, but the point is that you uh, have a fixed amount of money. It's a defined. It's defined by the amount you've contributed and how it's accumulated. It doesn't provide you with a defined annuitized benefit. Most of those plans have attached to them an option which allows you to buy an annuity with that lump of money 
so that you can annuitize it and turn the lump of money into a stream of payments every month for the rest of your life. And you can do that, but it's at your option. You can choose to do that or not. It's like, it's like with a lottery. When you win the lottery, they say, do you want a lump sum or do you want X amount per month for the rest of your life? It's the same with the pension. I mean, uh, with defined benefit plans, you almost always get an annuitized payment out month by month for the rest of your life. With a defined contribution plan, you have a lump sum and you decide whether you want to just manage your own money and, and put that lump to work and draw from it as you want, or if you want to buy an annuity with that lump sum or, or some halfway measure in between those two extremes. Taking into account what we discussed in relation to the devaluation of the dollar and, more importantly, inflation, which you said was the bigger concern, what sort of decisions should you be making if you have a pension plan or a defined benefits situation or both for many people who have them relating to the age at which you retire, the specific options that you choose, such as cost of living adjustments, spouse survivorship issues, etc. Well, that's a, that's a lot of variables to consider all in sort of one question, but I'll give it a shot. Um, the um, In general, the first thing you kind of have to do is you kind of have to take a point of view about your lifespan. And I know that's hard for people to do, but when you get onto a retirement calculator on provided on any one of these um, sites, Fidelity has them, you know, Vanguard has them, you go onto these the retirement calculators, the first thing they're going to say is, what age are you retiring at? And what age do you think you're going to live to? So that period of time that you have to provide for your needs is quite critical to the calculation, first of all. Um, So the first thing you have to think about is when will I retire? And my general advice to people for many reasons, not just financial, is to say, you know, you should think about working as long as you possibly can stand working. And the reasons for that are you're adding to your retirement pool instead of depleting it, and that means your retirement pool is bigger and therefore will last, have a better chance of lasting you the time you want to, uh, that you need to use it for two reasons. One, it's bigger, and two, you're going to need it for less time because you've worked for a bigger portion. Now, obviously, there are personal thoughts and decisions in terms of lifestyle and other things that you have to make in terms of deciding when you want to retire. But... Uh, number one, work as long as you possibly can because that improves your chances of having enough. And retirement sufficiency is the key issue here. Uh, secondly, um, you know, don't be unrealistic about how long you're likely to live. Um, it's it's always easier in your calculation if you say, well, I probably won't live past 75. But the truth is you should look at demographics and understand what your chances of, of your lifespan really are and do the best job you can of realistically calculating how long you're likely to live uh, because that period of time will depend will determine very um, significantly how much money you're going to need to save and therefore how much you can spend in the short run. Um, the um, the key issue about uh, 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 about 
longevity is that if if I take a 20-year-old and estimate their uh, lifespan, I've told you already that for a male today who's 20 years old, his expected lifespan in the United States, actuarially speaking, is 78 years old. Um, but if you're at 65, um, your lifespan is actually considerably longer than 78. Your lifespan is, at that point, you know, something like 83 or 84, maybe even 85. And and you're asking me why, why would that be? Well, first of all, you've made it to 65. And um, statistically speaking, your chances uh, uh, as a 65-year-old, because think of it this way, all those things between 20 and 65 that could have done you in, you know, whether it's the, the car that could have hit you or the parasailing accident that could have felled you or, you know, cancer or whatever, hasn't hasn't hit you and you you you've made it to 65 and you're alive and well at 65 and looking at the life expectancy at 65 is surprisingly considerably longer than the life expectancy at that point of a of a 20 year old uh way back when so and when you're at 65 you're expected to live to a certain age and you should use those gross statistics and then adjust them based on whether you think you're above average average or below average in health compared to the average person um i mean you can always go to your doctor and say doc where do i fit on that spectrum am i healthier less healthy or or uh, or about the same uh, as the rest of the population. And if your doctor's being honest with you, they can help you come up with a longevity. That's probably the first and most important thing you need to do. Then you need to figure out what your cost of living is and um, how much you expect to have to spend. You need to calculate in certain other issues like um, if you have a spouse, you know, what are the spousal survival provisions of your current um pension plans, whether it's a corporate pension plan or Social Security, there are certain spousal survival requirements. What other income sources does the spouse have? How long are they expected to live relative to you? Um, and how much do you expect to have to uh, expect to want to provide to your children, you know, in terms of a legacy? Um, I, I remind people when I talk about this that, you know, if you've got X dollars and you want to provide a certain amount for your kids and a certain amount for spousal survival, well, then that's the amount of retirement savings you really have because you got to set those amounts aside for that purpose. Um, if your task is just to say, I want to be able to I have enough money to live comfortably and I only care about myself. I don't have a spouse. I don't have kids or I don't need to worry about any of them. Well, fair enough. You know, then you don't have to deduct those from your pool of money. But once you've come up with the pool of money, then your big issue is how am I, how am I going to spend it and how am I going to invest it? Um, and I would argue that how you're going to invest it for reasons I already explained is the biggest decision you face because that's going to provide 50 cents out of every dollar of your retirement income security right there. So invest it very wisely. Do not just say, well, I'm going to be lazy because I'm in retirement and I don't want to worry about it. Um, that's the wrong decision to make. Um, pay attention to it. Invest it with good advice as wisely as you can. And then try and be prudent about how you spend it for the lifetime that you have. And only spend as much as um, you believe you reasonably have to spend in the short run so that you have the money there for the long run. 
According to a report from the National Institute on Retirement Security, there is a huge gap in income between women and men. I imagine that there are similar numbers relating to minorities and new immigrants. I don't have that data in front of me. This particular information says that women were 80% more likely than men to be impoverished at eight six at age 65 and older, while women 75 to 79 were three times more likely to fall below the poverty level than men the same age. What can you tell us in relation to these numbers and minorities, if you have any information on that as well? Well, I guess I start by saying that just stinks. Um, that's that's horrible that we're in a place where um, women and minorities uh, are in that position. Um, uh, but I don't know that I have any, um, you know, silver bullets or magic uh, to how to fix that situation, other than to say that, um, like anybody else, a woman or a minority has to deal with the realities that they faced. How much money do they have coming in? How much money do they have in their investment pot? Uh, you know, what's their age? When will they retire? How long uh, will their retirement period be? Um, and what's their longevity expectations? In other words, you, ju- you just have to deal with your own reality. Uh, it stinks when people have less money than they need, but they, uh, you know, they are where they are at this point in in the cycle, and they need to uh, just um, um, address their lifestyle accordingly. And um, that's not a good answer for what I would consider a social problem that you're describing to me, but um, I'm, I'm not in a position in this call to address the social ills uh, as much as I think that it's lousy that they exist, um, but I am able to say, given the amount of money you have and your life expectancy, here's how much you should plan on spending every year to live, and this is how you ought to be living. Um, or, more importantly for some of these people, because this is the reality that women and minorities are going to face, is that you better plan on working longer. That's the only really good advice that I give them. And And by the way, I would argue with them, that working longer will make them, and this is where I go off off my financial expertise and into my quote-unquote life expertise, uh, would be to say that uh, working longer um, is healthier for you, uh, make you probably live longer, um, and also probably uh, make you happier because uh, you're productive. So I, I would argue that they need to work longer and that, who knows, that might end up being a better thing for them overall in their happiness. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to get a better handle on what to do at an individual level? We've looked a lot at the big picture concepts, and actually a lot of the information that you shared is very positive. As a country, it sounds like we're in a much better shape than perhaps we thought. What can our listeners do at an individual level perhaps in their own businesses, if they are in a position to set up retirement plans, if they're in a position to invest for themselves and their families, what can they do? How can they become 
better informed? What resources, what suggestions would you share? Um, well, applying the keep it simple approach, I would end up saying that the first thing you all need to do is to save more and take advantage of as many tax deferral mechanisms as you can. What you want to harness here in the retirement life cycle of 40 years uh, is as much compounding value as you can. The compounding is one of the most powerful forces of nature, and I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. Um, if there was if there's one lesson that business school students learn when they go through business school, it is the time value of money and the power of compounding. And what that means is, you know, a dollar saved in your 20s is worth so much more than a dollar saved in your 60s. Um, because you have the benefit of that 40 years of compounding of the investment value. And therefore, I would argue, invest early. Um, try your darnest not to touch it and not to tap into it. A lot of people, you know, treat it like it's a little honeypot that they can go to when they need it to pay for a vacation or pay for something. And I would advise strongly against that. Any programs that your employer provides that have matching, you should take full advantage of, always, 100%. I don't care what your current uh, costs of living are. You should always, thinking in the long term, um, take advantage of matching fund programs that your employer has. And, and then uh, take advantage of any tax savings or deferral uh, uh, options like IRAs of all the types because what they give you is the ability to compound without paying taxes currently so you get the benefit of the compounding of the income on that account and the tax bill is only due at the very end and that saves you a tremendous amount because you're able to compound tax-free. Uh, those are the most important lessons. Uh, and it all relates to planning. And unfortunately, in this world, some people are natural planners and some people are just not planners. Um, and so my advice to planners is, you know, keep at it. Uh, you'll be richly rewarded for it. And my advice to non-planners is do your darndest to at least inject a little bit of planning into your horizon because you'll be sorry later if you don't. Thank you, Rich, for joining us from New York, New York. You're very welcome, Elena. I appreciate it, and uh, I wish everybody a uh, happy retirement. And just remember, retirement may not be for wimps, but as you said in the beginning, we all have to face it sooner or later and just face it with as much foresight as you possibly can. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Richard Marin. CEO of Low Emissions Resources Corporation, who discussed Retirement is Not for Wimps. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. 